God, we come to your word, which is full of the message of life, which speaks to us of conditions which we see in our own, in our own world and as well speaks to us of the way that you make all things new, even here in this passage. So we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see, shed light upon our path that we would see and understand and respond in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Kings 4, starting in the 38th verse. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and cook some stew for these men. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine. He gathered some of its gourds and filled the fold of his cloak. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew where, what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God twenty loaves of barley bread, baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain to eat. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. I suspect that we would all consider ourselves to have some kind of specialty. For some of us, our specialty is running. That's certainly not my specialty, but it is for some of you who enjoy inflicting pain upon yourselves. For some, it might be baking. For some, it might be teaching. For others, landscaping or organizing or perhaps humor would be something you would consider to be your specialty. So, whatever your specialty is, now think about what is God's specialty. Is it creating or sustaining, holding all the things that He's made together? Or maybe it's saving or it's redeeming. Maybe it's being holy. Maybe it's being glorious. What is God's specialty? Well, we could say that all of those things are God's specialties because God does everything to the uttermost. Everything God does, He does to perfection. And everything that He does is in perfect union with everything else that He does. But if we were going to sum up, perhaps, what God's specialty is, we might say it like this. God's specialty is His sufficiency. That is that God is always enough. That He creates enough. Not enough in kind of the, the minimal sense, like, I did enough to graduate. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about enough in the perfect sense that God creates enough for it to be 
said to be very good, that God saves enough that nothing else needs to be done, that God redeems enough for all things to truly be made new, that God is glorious and holy enough to be worthy not just of some praise, but of all praise, that God is perfectly sufficient in everything that He does and everything that He needs to do. And we saw this in the last two stories that we looked at in Kings quite some time ago when we gathered together, that God was sufficient to save the widow's sons from becoming debt slaves when the debt collector came. And he was sufficient to spare the, the, Shunammite, <coughs> excuse me, the Shunammite woman's son from the grave. Not that he prevented the son from going into the grave, but that he had sufficient power to raise her son from the grave. And we see that God is sufficient in these two stories here as well today. And so we'll take them in turn, and we'll start with the first one, found in verses 38 to 41. Again, starting in verse 38, Elijah returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and cook some stew for these men. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine. He gathered some of its gourds and filled the fold of his cloak. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot! And they could not eat it. <clears throat> Elisha said, get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. I really wish that as a kid I had known this story. I think it would have come in very handy. This kind of story is every kid's dream. You can just uh, imagine how a child might apply this passage. Look, Mom. This guy goes out and he gets some vegetables. And he goes and he gets the vegetables and he cuts them up just like you do. And he cuts them up and he puts them in the stew. And the people all ate the vegetables and the vegetables were going to kill them. Mom, vegetables kill people. May I have a Twinkie, please? Now, but this is like a church potluck gone wrong. Or maybe we might say it's like a... It's, it's like a hot lunch program gone wrong. The prophets have all gathered together, and they've gathered together to Elisha. And this is sort of like a seminary uh, lecture. Elisha is the professor. He's, he's the great man of God who has the, the Word of God. And all these prophets have gathered together to learn from Elisha. And these prophets wouldn't really have typically been the kind who would raise the dead like Elisha did. They were more like teachers or preachers. And so they've gathered to Elisha, and then when Elisha is done teaching them, they'll go back to their underground churches in Israel, which were forbidden. Remember, in Israel's idolatry, the kings would have killed you if they knew that you were a part of the true people of God. And so they would go back out to these churches and they would teach whatever Elisha had taught them. Now growing up, going to the, to the government schools, I enjoyed the hot lunch program. It was a very simple concept. The, 
the school wanted to feed you lunch, and so they gave it to you at a discounted, taxpayer-subsidized price. And it was a lot less healthy back when I was a kid than it is now. We had corn dogs and some greasy lasagna and some French bread pizza. And really, generally, it was a, it was a good lunch, but there was one day I always brought my own lunch. This is kind of an aside. It was hash brown casserole day. It was like they took hash browns and ground beef and corn and they just like chopped it up as much as they could and turned it into a a disgusting mush. I always brought my own lunch on hash brown casserole day, but this this is sort of like a hot lunch program. Elisha doesn't want these prophets to go out and have to find their own lunch. He wants to maximize their time together. So he says to his servant, go out, go out and grab uh, whatever you need for the stew and put the large pot on so that all these prophets can eat and not be distracted from their learning. And so the servant goes and he goes to do exactly that. And one of these guys goes out and he goes out and he's going to gather herbs and some wild vegetables because there's a famine. Now, the, <clears throat> the note that there's a famine is, is not insignificant. It's one of those details that, that we would typically pass right on by. But it's not something that the Israelites would have passed right on by, and it's not someone who is, who is focused in on the book of Deuteronomy would have passed on by. Remember that the book of Kings is an interpretation of Israel's history in light of what is said in Deuteronomy. It's, it's a book to demonstrate that the word of the Lord is true, that what God had promised would happen in Deuteronomy is precisely what happened. And one of the things that God had promised in Deuteronomy was that if the people fell into idolatry, the promised land would become the cursed land. And that if they fell into idolatry, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of plenty, would become a land of famine. Remember when the spies first go into Canaan, Moses sends the spies, Caleb and Joshua and the rest, and they come back with some fruits from the land. The clusters of grapes are so huge, they have to carry them on poles with multiple men. That's how it's supposed to be, but idolatry brings God's judgment upon the land, and so there's a famine. And we see that this is described by the word of the Lord in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, 38, and 39. The Lord says, if there's idolatry, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall... Neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Idolatry leads to devastation. But these men aren't idolaters. They're prophets. They're teachers of the true message of the true God. So why do they suffer? Well, it's good for us to remember that oftentimes the righteous suffer alongside the unrighteous. The righteous suffer even though they have no reason to suffer because of the sins of the unrighteous. You know, we can think of a a more modern example, though fading perhaps from memory and outside of living memory for many of us. We can think of, of the example in the Second World War 
we, we generally think of the Germans as the bad guys, right? And generally speaking, they were the bad guys. But not every German was a Nazi. Before we, before we just cast the nation of Germany off, we should recall that Germany was the land of Martin Luther. That the Heidelberg Catechism was written in Germany, and during the Second World War, there were, there were faithful Christians. Not every German was a Nazi. Lots of Germans hated the Nazis. Not every German hated God or hated the Jews. There were many God-fearing people in the land of Germany. But when the bombs, when the Allied bombers carpet-bombed cities like Dresden and Berlin, the righteous died with the unrighteous. The fires, the firestorms that swept through the city didn't care whether you worshipped God or hated God. You were consumed one way or the other. And so these prophets are suffering alongside of the unrighteous and suffering because of the unrighteous. And so one of these men goes out, and he goes out to get some veggies for the stew. And he thinks he's found exactly what he's looking for because he goes out and he, he finds some, some wild gourds or some, some wild melons, little small yellow melons. And he goes out and finds them, and he thinks, this is great. So he fills his cloak with them, and he carries them back. He dices them up. He puts them in the stew. Job well done, right? Well, not exactly. You see, he's, he's not a horticulturalist. He doesn't know a whole lot about plants and what's good and what's bad. If I go out into the woods, I have no idea whether that berry is going to be delicious or whether it's going to be gross, whether it's going to kill me or just be kind of a fun little treat. Well, this guy is the, is the same way. And so he, he puts this yellow melon into the stew. And the yellow melon, which is known even today, is what we call a purgative. That is, it's like X-lax on steroids. And so the men begin to literally poop their guts out. Whoever said the Bible was boring. And so the men literally, literally, uh, we, we might say, uh, expelling their innards, begin to cry out to the man of God, there is death in the pot. In other words, save us. There is nothing that we can do for ourselves. They can't go to the ER and have their stomach pumped. They, they can't do anything for themselves. The only, the only thing they can think of now to rescue them is to call out to the man of God who does miracles, who even raises the dead, and ask him to spare them from dying. And so, strangely, Elisha says, go get some flour. And so somebody goes and gets some flour. He takes the flour which is not miracle flour, it's just regular flour, and he throws the flour into the pot, and he says, take the stew and feed it to the men. Now, what an odd thing to say. Right? Why, didn't, why didn't Elisha just heal the men? I'm sure the men would have been content to be healed, to dump the death stew out, and to make some new stuff without the help of the servant who went out and got the veggies and be content with just having a new pot and not being dead. That would have been something they would have been satisfied with, I'm sure. But God is not content with that. God is not content with just saving, if we can say just. God is intent on redeeming. God does not want to just be rid of the death stew and its effects 
God wants to turn the death stew into a life stew. But we can stop and just grieve over the stew for a moment. We can grieve about what it says about God's good creation. God did not make poisonous melons. God didn't make those. Those things are a result of the fall. There are death-causing fruits in the creation which God made very good because we made God's creation not very good any longer. It's like we talked about last week from Isaiah 11, that the lion and the ox were made to eat the grass together. But now because of sin, the lion eats the ox. But God is not content just to get rid of the lion. In the end, God will make the lion to eat the grass with the ox again. And so here, God is not content merely to be rid of the stew. God wants to take the stew, which was meant to sustain life, and He wants to bring that stew from causing death into its original purpose, which was to sustain life life. You see what God does? He not only saves, but He redeems. He takes that which is bad. He doesn't just get rid of it. He takes that which is bad and He makes it good. And God shows Himself in all of this to be perfectly sufficient. He is all that is needed to take death and make it life. And so we see that God is sufficient. And then we'll see that very same lesson as we move into the second story of God's miracle. Second Kings, and we'll start in verse 42 then. A man came from Baal Shalisham, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them. And they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. So here comes a man with 20 loaves. But it's not just 20 loaves. It's the first 20 loaves. And remember, this is a time of a famine. This is not the time when the man who brings the 20 loaves can go look at his fields and say, there are hundreds and hundreds of loaves to be had out of these fields. This is a famine where loaves of bread would have been at a premium. And yet he comes to the man of God, he comes to Elisha, And he brings these 20 loaves, not out of his plenty, not out of his richness, but out of his lack, out of his poverty. And we see a story that's similar to this, but perhaps even more extreme than this, when we come to the life and ministry of Jesus. In Mark 12, Jesus is sitting in the temple, and we read this again from Mark 12, and Jesus, he sat down opposite the treasury that is in the temple and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. 
And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So it's 20 loaves. It's generous. It's faith, and it's also obedient. This is what the Lord commands in his law. We can look at two examples, one from Leviticus and one from Deuteronomy. The Lord says in Leviticus 23, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And again from Deuteronomy, the first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. So it's faith-filled, faithful obedience. But it's still not that much. It's just 20 loaves, small barley loaves. But even still, Elisha says, well, take those 20 loaves. He gives them to his servant, and he says, go feed, them, go feed the people. And the servant looks at the loaves, looks at the hundred, hundred being a round number. It need not have been exactly a hundred. If he had said 96, we would expect it to be exactly 96. But a hundred just means a large number. It's likely that it was even more than a hundred. And he looks at this, this large crowd, and he looks at the loaves, and he looks at the crowd, and he says, it's not going to work. There's not enough bread here to feed all those people. Now, he, he's not a math major, but he can see that, that 20 loaves does not equal enough food to feed 100 different men. And so he thinks that, that maybe this prophet is a little goofy. But as we see, it's not the prophet who's a little goofy. It's the servant who's goofy. Because the servant has doubted that God is sufficient. This servant knows that Elisha has raised the dead by the power of the word of the Lord. He knows that this Elisha has bought these, the, this widow's sons out of debt slavery by the word of the Lord. How is it that he can look at the 20 loaves and just the, the hundred men or so and say, I don't think it can be done even when Elisha says it can be done? What a fool! How is it that he can see God's provision in his own life and read about it in the law of God and then look at his, he can look at his present time and say, I don't see how it's going to work. He's a fool. He doubts that God is sufficient. But Elisha says, go do it. This is what the Lord says. They will eat, and they will have some left over. So the servant, to his credit, does what he's told. He takes the loaves, he brings them to the, he brings them to the crowd, 
And exactly what the Lord said was going to happen happens. They ate and they had some left over. Now, if you're familiar at all with the life of Jesus, you should have all kinds of connections being made. You don't have to be a a New Testament scholar to remember a time when Jesus had a few loaves and a crowd way too big to be fed with a few loaves. And he takes the loaves and he breaks them and he, he shares them with the people. And this huge crowd is fed. And we can look to this, to this same event, turning over to John 6. John 6, verses 1 to 13. You can find that on page 1655 in your pew Bible if you'd like to read along. John 6, verses 1 to 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves, barley loaves, and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So many similarities, aren't there? The difference is not in necessarily the, the bones of the story. The difference is in the magnitude of the story. When Elisha feeds the crowd, it's just a hundred or so men. When Jesus feeds the crowd, it's 5,000 or so men. And when Elisha feeds them, he has 20 barley loaves to work with. When Jesus feeds them, he has just five and a couple of small fish. And yet the the details are are so similar. You really have have five similarities. First, you have a quandary. You have a big crowd that needs to eat and not enough food, it seems, to feed them. Secondly, you have a servant. Elisha's servant, in this case, Andrew, who has some food, but not enough to feed the crowd. And third, you have a master who instructs that the insufficient amount be given to the crowds to eat. And then fourth, you have a crowd which is miraculously fed. And fifth, you have leftovers. All the details line up. Only The, the only difference is the amount. There's a common theme that runs through the Scriptures. That God is always sufficient. That God is always enough. God was enough with Abraham 
with giving him a son in his old age. And God was enough with Jacob when Jacob and his sons were going to starve to death in Canaan. He, he was sufficient to provide Joseph, who was already in Egypt, already a high up man in Egypt, and could give them all the grain they needed in the richest part of the land. And God was enough with Moses when the Israelites needed a Savior, when they needed manna on the ground for 40 years. He provided enough every day as long as they were wandering in the wilderness. And He's enough in the time of Elisha. God is always enough, powerful enough to raise the dead, powerful enough to buy debt slaves back, powerful enough to turn death stew into life stew, and powerful enough to feed a hundred men with just uh, two tens of loaves. He's powerful enough. He's sufficient enough to feed thousands with five loaves in the time of Jesus. He is sufficient. Does God change? Does God change? Is He still enough? He's still enough. God is sufficient yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And God cares about everyday ordinary things like bread. God cares. In fact, in the, in the two stories here, the Hebrew verb for to eat appears eight times. It seems that God cares that we eat. You know, food is so common for us. You drive down, you drive down Torrance from here to River Oaks, you're going to pass about, about 50 restaurants. You drive from here over to Calumet, you'll pass an Aldi and a Strax and a Jewel. We, don't even, we just take food for granted. When I come home for dinner, I don't, say, I don't say, are we going to eat tonight? I say, what's to eat tonight? Right? The problem in America is not so much starvation as it is that we eat too much. Right? We think of food as luxury, not as necessity. But we forget that without food, we would die. And yet God provides food for us day by day by day by day that we might have life day by day by day by day. We should marvel. Jesus tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We should marvel that of all people who have ever lived, we should marvel most that God provides so richly for us. But we fret more than we marvel, don't we? We wonder about what may happen. But will not God still provide? We find ourselves all too often in the place of Elisha's servant and Andrew. What was their problem? They looked at the loaves and the crowd and the loaves and the crowd, and they forgot to look from the insufficient loaves to the sufficient Lord. They forgot that God is enough and that he can always give enough. God provides. Each week that we come here, we should be reminded that God is enough, that God is sufficient, that God has sustained us for another week, that we've had everything we need for yet another week. We should be reminded every week, if I'm doing my job, we should be reminded every week that Christ is enough. When we read the Ten Commandments, something that, that feels like condemnation, we should be reminded that we read them because it reminds us that Jesus is enough. 
that Jesus is enough to take even people like us when we feel all that conviction from reading all those things and we recognize all the ways that we've fallen short this morning and this week and in our life that Jesus is sufficient to rescue us. If He wasn't, why would we be here? But He's sufficient week by week, day by day, life by life. He is sufficient. But sometimes we need special ways to be reminded of that. And these guys got a special way. I doubt the guys who ate the very strong purgative and then were saved ever forgot that day. And I doubt that Elisha's servant ever forgot the 20 loaves which fed the 100. And I know the disciples didn't forget because it's written in the Scriptures. We need to be reminded in ways that are visible sometimes. So God gives us simple, visible things to remind us that He is enough. Things like bread and wine and water. Bread to remind us that God provides. Wine to remind us that God saves. Water to remind us that Christ is sufficient to wash away all the sins and make us new. When we look at something like the bread and the wine of communion, we should look at those and remember what Jesus says, it is finished. No more body, no more blood. Now reminders that Jesus is enough to save. That He is enough to free us from everything which would enslave us. He is enough to free us from death and hell itself. No more fear in death. No more danger of hell for those who belong to Christ. No more wondering about what will happen. That Jesus is enough to say it is finished. Not just that His suffering was finished, but that our fear of our own suffering at God's wrath is finished. That Jesus is enough. That God is always sufficient. You might have any kind of specialty, but being sufficient is not your specialty. None of us is sufficient enough. None of us is good enough to not have a desperate need for God. We're not sufficient. But that's okay. Because God is sufficient. Sufficiency is His specialty. No matter what it is, no matter what it is that we need, whatever it is, God is sufficient to provide. Stew, bread, salvation, and being made new in Christ. God is always enough. God is always sufficient. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love the words of your son when he says it is finished. He says, I am the bread of life. Right after he feeds the 5,000, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. And you have placed by your Spirit, you have placed in us a conviction of sin. 
where we hunger and thirst for a righteousness which is not our own, which is alien to us. And you have filled us with the bread of life who makes up for all that we lack. That he is enough. That you have done enough. And that you have given <clears throat> enough. Lord, don't let us be fools to see what you have done in our past, to see what you have done in the past in the scriptures, and to spend so much time looking at our weaknesses and our inadequacies and our insufficiencies and fail to look up to you. We pray that you would not let us be fools, but let us be wise to see that you were always enough. You always give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.